The following message is from Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. It's great to see all of you here this morning. Um, as I mentioned last week, I normally just give a one-off message as a theme for the new year, but this year I've really decided to expand it over a whole series where we're looking at the fruit of the Spirit and just seeing how that becomes one of sort of the overriding um, ways to even frame what God's agenda is for our life. And so we want to continue in that series this morning. Uh, join me in a word of prayer and we'll look at this topic of love in, in our message for today. God, even as we reflect um, on a new year and thinking about New Year's resolutions and all of these ways that we want our life to be different and to um, commit ourselves to changing, um, we pray that all of that would be done in a, in a spirit of um, searching and submission to you, of asking what is on your heart for us, not just what we want for ourselves, but what it is that you want for us, and grant to us eyes to uh, see what you're saying in your word, uh, even this morning as we pray these things in Christ's name. Well, let me begin the message this morning by simply asking you this question. How, how would you answer this question? Um, how have you grown this past year? If someone were to ask you that, um, what, what's the growth you've experienced in this past year? Uh, where would your mind go to, to even try to answer this question? Maybe you would uh, think about the different roles that you play in your life, in your family, or in your career, Maybe even here at ICC as a church member, and you're trying to process all the ways you've grown in those roles. Or maybe what stands out to you are the achievements and the milestones that you've reached. Uh, maybe you've gotten promoted in your career or changed jobs, or maybe you've run a marathon, or maybe you've learned a new skill or started a new hobby. I don't know. Or maybe for some of you, you just think about your personal growth, where your mind goes to are the habits and uh, that you've adopted or issues of mental health or self-care. So you feel like in this past year you've learned to slow down a little bit or to not be as anxious about things. Or maybe you, you realize you're eating and sleeping better than you've done in the past. And these might be helpful ways to evaluate our personal growth. But I, I, I think what a more important thought here is, is what is the lens through which God measures my growth? And I believe the answer is actually found in this fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about in this letter to the Galatians. Chapter 5, verse 22 to 23 is sort of the centerpiece of our series here. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. In other words, what is most important to God is the kind of person that we are becoming, growing into the resemblance of his son, Jesus. And Paul describes that a little earlier in this letter as Christ being formed in us. And after listing the fruit of the Spirit, he throws in this interesting comment that I uh, mentioned last week, which is, against such things, there is no law. Because as I mentioned last week, there was this faction of Jewish believers who were arguing with a Paul that Christians need to follow the Old Testament law because after all this is a law given to us by God 
that is supposed to guard us from falling into sin and living the kind of holy and righteous life that God wants for us. But Paul argued passionately against this. He says we are not to come under the law as Christians, as Christ followers. In fact, that's the last thing that Christians should do is to try to obey this law because in Christ we have freedom from this law, freedom from the obligations of this law. And I, I, I mentioned last week, I don't think we fully understand how radical this teaching is of having freedom in Christ. Because I think even in our day, there's this constant tendency to want to know what the rules are, what, what the law should be that governs our behavior. Tell us how every Christian ought to live their lives as if the Bible was some kind of answer book like that, that basically tells us rules of life. And um, if you look at it in, in, in Scripture, you see that debate going on all the time. Like there was this big deal about the Sabbath, Sabbath keeping. And there was a sense in which some Christians were arguing that, you know, you, if you really are honoring God, then there ought to be one day a week where you do no work because that's what God wants. And uh, in various ages, we've added other stuff to it, especially in more recent days where some Christians would say you shouldn't shop and you shouldn't eat at restaurants and on and on because it's the Sabbath. And for others, they say, listen, it's no big deal. And, and it doesn't really matter whether you keep a Sabbath day or not. And um, what you find, as Paul says to the Romans in chapter 14, verse 5, he says, one person uh, considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. In other words, the principle of Sabbath keeping, of learning how to find rest in God, should be honored. But each of us is free to decide how to observe this. And it doesn't mean that we all have to honor one day a week where we say this is the Sabbath. And we should not, in fact, impose that conviction of ours on other Christians and say everyone has to do this. In those days, there was also a really big deal uh, debate about meat sacrificed to idols. And some thought if you eat this meat, then what you're basically doing is you're participating in that idolatrous worship service by eating that meat that was part of that service. And in fact, if you even go to the Old Testament, there's this passage in Deuteronomy 32, which talks about the fact that when people worship false gods, what they're really worshiping are demons. And so you can understand why a Christian would struggle with this and say, by eating this meat, aren't we basically participating in demon worship? Isn't this satanic? And others said, no, it's no big deal. And, and again, in the very next verse in Romans 14, it says, whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and give thanks to God. Even on this issue, Paul says, there's no absolute right or wrong answer here. Because in our freedom in Christ, listen, God gave all meat. All of it is coming from God. And so he's saying, listen, if it bothers you, don't eat it. If you're okay with it, eat it. There is this freedom that we have in Christ. That we're not bound by all these rules or these laws that tell us do this, don't do that. 
And don't impose that conviction on other people as if that's what God wants for everybody. I think in our day, there's a big debate over Halloween, isn't there? If I were to try to find something where we struggle with it, some Christians say if you let your kids go trick-or-treating, then you are basically letting them play in the devil's playground because it's a pagan holiday. And other Christians have no problem with it, and they enthusiastically participate in it. It's fun. What's the big deal? Come on. And, and if you see how Paul handled things like the Sabbath and meat sacrifice to idols, I suspect he would answer it very similarly. There's no universal law about Halloween that all Christians are supposed to follow, but in our freedom in Christ, we may differ on Halloween as Christians. The people who were opposing Paul had a real problem with this. They said, Paul, you go too far because if you talk this freedom language, what you're basically doing is you are opening the door to a lawless life, a reckless life. People are going to use your freedom argument to do all kinds of horrible things in the, and, and, and do it with impunity. They're going to have no problem with it because, hey, freedom in Christ, I can do whatever I want. Don't you judge me. And Paul says, absolutely not. If you make that argument that you think this is going to lead to greater sin, then he's saying, you don't understand the fullness of God's salvation. Because he says, what is greater than the law is at work in the heart of a Christian, which is the work of the Holy Spirit in that person's life to make them to become the kind of people that God wants them to be. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 to 18 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, what Paul is saying is if you are a true believer, then you're not going to use your freedom as an excuse to get away with all kinds of sinful behavior because what the Spirit is doing in your life is He is changing you at the level of your hearts, not of laws. Paul says this in Romans 6. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves of sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Again, he's affirming this truth that what is greater than rules or the laws at work in you because God is changing you in your heart to want you to desire the things that God wants. Now, as I pointed out last week, of course, this doesn't mean that living rightly is easy. Because there is very much so an ongoing war in our hearts of the flesh and of the spirit. But what Paul also says, because that spirit is at work in us, we have confidence that we will win this war and not uh, follow the way of sin but follow a way that honors God. 
Now, it's important that we don't even view this list of uh, the fruit of the Spirit as rules or laws either. It's very easy to suddenly turn these into rules, isn't it? You have to be loving and you have to be kind. If you're a Christian, you better be good and you better be faithful. It's why he actually shifts his language from law and rules when he talks about sin into using the language of fruit, of fruit. Why does he do that? Why does he use the fruit metaphor? Well, I think he does that because a healthy living plant like a grapevine will naturally produce fruit. And in the same way, I think he's saying if you are genuinely saved and the Spirit of God is in you, then you will naturally produce the fruit of salvation by exhibiting these qualities. So it echoes what Jesus said in John 15, verse 4, Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. In other words, we, what Jesus is saying is you, if you are truly saved and you are in me, you will inevitably bear this fruit in your life. It's not about rules or laws. It's just simply the work of God that is expressed in your life because of what he's doing in you. And of all the different expressions of God's spirit bearing fruit in us, the most important one is love. I think that's why it is listed first. A few verses earlier in Galatians 5, verse 13 to 14, Paul says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And what the Bible tells us is this. That the default posture of the human heart is not one of love, but one of self-centeredness. <clears throat> I love this picture. Um, I think it so perfectly captures the human heart. What the Bible tells us is that we are all in love with ourselves. We're all so self-absorbed, even self-obsessed. And there's just so much evidence of this all the time. Have you... Have you ever gone to a social gathering and on your drive home, you're obsessing over that stupid comment that you made and you're imagining that everyone else driving home from that party is talking about a stupid comment you made and you feel like the world is ending for you. And what you don't realize is nobody is talking about you because they're probably thinking about the stupid things they said as well on their drive home. But, but that's just how life works, right? We, we just can't help but make it about us all the time. We think every eye is on us and everyone must be thinking about us all the time. And the truth is no one really cares that much. Probably most people even catch what you said in that party. Or someone is sharing a story that went on in their life. And you're just squirming in your seat and you can barely contain yourself because you want to tell your story that that story reminds you of. And so sometimes you even interrupt that person to tell them your story. Before they're even done telling theirs. Self-obsession is the air that we breathe. You know, this uh, pastor, Aaron Menikoff, talks about this time when he, after assisting in many church plants, became a senior pastor of his own church. 
and the enormous pressure and the insecurities they felt, especially having to be the main teacher, the preacher in that church. And so shortly after this church got started and he preached, he had somebody over and he writes about this experience of a friend that came over to sort of talk with him and, and he tried to get into this issue of the sermon with him. And Menikoff writes, shortly after one of my first Sunday evening sermons, I met up with a godly friend to get some feedback. We sat at his kitchen table over a cup of coffee and a box of Entenmann's pastries. Before he could say a word, I defensively assured him my message didn't measure up to my standards. He listened as I lamented my performance. Of course, I secretly hoped he would interrupt and counter my assessment. I gave him every opportunity to correct me. Aaron, he could have said, your message was actually quite good. Be encouraged. I longed for him to explain how my insightful words changed his life. Instead, he thanked me for preaching and changed the topic. A few days later, he placed a handwritten note in my mailbox. It began with 1 Corinthians 13.1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul's point is clear. When pursuing spiritual gifts to make us look good, we rob them of their value. My friend recognized that I focused on myself more than the people I had hoped to serve. Imagine having the courage to put a note like that in a friend's mailbox, all right? First of all, I don't think I could do that. But really, what an act of courageous love, isn't that? To say that to a friend. You could see the battle that is going on in this preacher's heart. Because I'm sure somewhere in there is a desire to want to care for his congregation. And to feed them with the word of God. But you also sense that there is this deep thirst for affirmation that he is seeking through his preaching. To use his sermons as a way to make him feel better about himself. And I think that's true of all of life. All of us. So much of our attempts to, good, to do good to others is tainted by the self-interest. This self-obsession. It's like a high school student who is signed up for the local pantry and participates in the cleanup project for the local river and is in orchestra and is on student council. But he doesn't really care about any of this stuff. He just knows that it looks good on his college apps, right? And I think that's what the Bible is telling us is that the key missing ingredient in all of this is love, is love. And when you miss love, you have nothing. It's nothing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. When we try to understand what the Bible is telling us about love, at its core, love is not about having warm, fuzzy feelings about others, but about seeking their good being more concerned about their welfare than even our own. That is at the heart of the biblical definition 
of love. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23 to 24 captures that definition well. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Here he's talking about the issue of freedom, right? So he's saying, in this twisted way, I can use that logic of freedom to say then I get to do whatever I want. He goes, no, no. For the Christian, that freedom becomes an opportunity not to serve myself, but to do good to others. And I would argue that this is one of the greatest works that God does in the heart of a person when he saves them. Is to take someone who is so self-obsessed, self-concerned, so self-centered, and to give them a heart of love which then suddenly transforms them into a person who now focuses more on the needs of others than even their own needs. This should be the telltale sign of every follower of Jesus. This inherent other-centeredness and freedom from self-obsession. Tim Keller captures this transformation well in what he says about what he calls gospel humility. And I'm going to read you a quote of his, and wherever you hear humility or humble, you could basically replace it with love, because I think it captures the same spirit of what we're reading here. Keller writes, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity makes a brilliant observation. If we were to meet a truly humble person, Lewis says, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not be always telling us that they were a nobody, because a person who keeps saying they are a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel-humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself. Not needing to connect things with myself. True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. A truly gospel humble person is not a self-hating person or a self-loving person. The truly gospel humble person is a self-forgetful person. Whose ego is just like his or her toes. It just works. It does not draw attention to itself. The toes just work. The ego just works. Neither draws attention to itself. I think that's a wonderful description of somebody who is spiritually mature. Is when you're with that person, you kind of lose yourself in that relationship. Because what you don't realize, maybe always so overtly, is it's because you, that person is so focused on you so attending to you and cares about you that you're not so self-conscious about what he's thinking all the time about how he's analyzing you or, or what he's trying to get out of the relationship. How do you know that you're really growing in love? Well, I think the answer, as we're seeing here, is when you naturally think about others more than yourself, that you're not so self-obsessed with all of the things that worry you or you care about. An article was published just a couple years ago with this conversation between these two heavyweights in the theological world, Stanley Hauerwas and William Willimon. They're both professors at the Duke Divinity School. 
And they were just talking about, with one another, about just how ministry has changed in the last decades. And kind of lamenting some of the changes that they're seeing in our society and in the church. And it was captured in this article. And in this article, Willeman is quoted to have said to Harawas, I've told seminarians that ministry defined as meeting people's needs is dangerous in a society where the most affluent and privileged among us have solved with a credit card most of our biblical needs like food, housing, and clothing. So we move on to assuaging personal needs the Bible doesn't give a rip about. Meaning-making, a purpose-driven life, balance, freedom from anxiety, or a sense of personal well-being. Fulfillment of desire becomes elevated to the level of need, and need gets jacked up to the status of a right. Because my desires are a bottomless pit, no wonder so many clergy become exhausted, rushing about in service to my right to be cared for. Running errands for the anxiously affluent is hardly worth a life. I sometimes think that contemporary North American Christians are so beset by personal psychological problems because the church has failed to give us any assignment more interesting than the care of our own souls. So pretty strong words, right? Uh, in that conversation, Howard is also quoted to have said back, when people expect their pastor to help them display and then heal their wounds, the Christian faith is reduced to a technique for gaining control over your life so you can be happy. Churches where Christians have themselves, wounds and all, caught up in an ongoing narrative that reflects God's glory in the world. That glory is manifest in the existence of a people who have been storied by a gracious God so, so that they might reclaim the pastoral office as an expression of the work of the Holy Spirit. What matters is that we show the world what it looks like for wounded people to care for one another in the name of that wound called the Christ. Now let me say this. If you've been at ICC for any length of time, um, you know that I'm a strong believer in soul care and in emotional health and in mental health. Um, I do think that there is actually a very important journey that all of us need to go on in terms of understanding the brokenness of our past and to learn how we can be healed from that brokenness. Having said that, I also want to say that there is a need to hear the warning that is being sounded by Willimon and Hauerwas. I think what they're really trying to tell the church is this. If our search for wholeness and inner healing leads us only to an even more self-absorbed and self-centered life, then something has gone woefully wrong. That is not the gospel. By God's grace, we live here in America, in a country that is unbelievably privileged, not to struggle with so many of the basic needs of survival that the rest of the world deals with on a daily basis. Like, will I have a roof over my head? Will I be able to put food on the table at dinner tonight? But I think what Willem and Hauerwas are saying about the church in America today is that rather than seeing that blessing as an opportunity, 
that we are set free from all of those struggles of survival, rather than the suddenly taking all that freed up resources and energies to help others, instead we become obsessed with the trivial because we have nothing bigger to really worry about. Gosh, we need a new backsplash in our kitchen. This thing is just horrible. And why is our fridge over here? It should be over there. So we got to do it all over. And while we're at it, let's redo this floor because I hate it. Or I got a manicure the other day. And I, I just I realized I picked the wrong color and it's just driving me crazy. So I got to go next week and fix this mess. You know? Or shoot, that show I want to watch is only on Apple TV. Darn. Well, I guess we got to get Apple TV now <laughs> and add to one of the other dozen streaming services that we subscribe to now. Do you hear the warning that's being sounded here? There's just been some waywardness that's gone on in us. When we claim to be ones who know the love of God, and yet that love hasn't set us free to love others. It has just reduced us into just as self-obsessed people as the world. Well, so then what does the real gospel love look like? And how do we nurture it in our hearts? I think there are a few passages in John's first epistle that are very helpful here. First John chapter 3, verse 16 to 18, it says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So first of all, what John is telling us is that love for others has to flow out of our understanding of God's love for me. And what he's saying about that love is that this is not just a sentiment or a, a posture of goodwill that God had toward us, but it's saying that it was expressed in action. That God's love to us was visible to us because he sent his son to die on a cross for our sins. And that's why he says that love is a model for us of how we ought to love one another. That our love should not just be reduced to mere sentiment or words. But there ought to be action that makes a real felt impact in the lives of others. And John spells it out really practically. Is there somebody in your circle of influence that has a need? Meet that need if you say that the love of God is in you. In chapter 4 and verse 7 to 12, he says this. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. He says two things in this passage. 
that I think are rather remarkable about love. I talked about this a little bit last week, but I said in our day of denominationalism and all the different factions that we have, it seems like what we define ourselves by is doctrine, doctrine, theology. But when you look at this passage, what is John saying is the way you're going to identify who the true follower of Jesus is. He doesn't point to doctrine, theological truths. What are the truths that you stand behind? He says, does that person display love in their life? Because God is love. And if there is no evidence of love in their life, then you have to seriously question if God is in their life. Because that's nonsensical. That a person can claim to say that they have God in them and yet have no love for others. So really, the greatest sign of an assurance of salvation is the love of God displayed in you. And then the second thing that I find really interesting about what John says here about love is this. He says, listen, I acknowledge that we worship an invisible God that we cannot see. And that's a problem, right? How can we worship a God that we cannot see? And yet, what John seems to be saying is one of the greatest ways that God has chosen to display his presence in our world is not through miracles or mystical signs. And the truth is, we're all kind of seeking that, aren't we? That's the way we hunger for God is I want to feel something in my heart. I want to be at worship and I want to feel like God, like just electricity went through my entire body and I want to know God is real. I think we want to see miracles. And those are the ways that we want to experience God. But when you look in the Bible, it says this. It says the way that an invisible God makes himself visible is through the people of God who show the tangible love of God to others. And when somebody experiences that love, they will say God is real because I have felt him through the love that this person showed me. The greatest witness to an unbelieving world is the love that the church shows to others. What a great calling we have in Christ. And I think the only way that we become these kind of people is when we know that we are so secure in the love of God that I don't have to sit there and worry about what other people are thinking about me all the time. I'm not so obsessed with my reputation or about these trivial things that I'm chasing after that I think I need to make me happy. Because when I know that God loves me, I have the most important thing and everything else is okay. I am suddenly set free now. I just feel like that burden that was on me my entire life has been lifted. And the greatest expression of that is how I love others in my life. That is the most powerful expression of freedom in Christ. Walter Elwell really, I think, captures well this gospel story when he talks about it as a comparison in marriage. I'm trying to think about it in a marriage context. And he says, listen, in a healthy marriage, there is always a mutual exchange of kindness. So the wife is busy running errands all day and watching the kids. And so the husband comes home and he sees that his wife just really is overloaded. And so he lovingly volunteers to make dinner that night. And that's a beautiful picture and that's great. But the truth is there's something very transactional about that too, right? There's reciprocity there. Each of them is doing their part to make this marriage work. That's great. But then he says, picture another scenario where the husband is having a really bad day. And he just chooses to be really unkind. And he's grumpy and he's rude. 
the wife could easily retaliate and just be as upset and attack back. But she doesn't. She responds in kindness and understanding and forgiveness and shows love to him. And says, and Elwell says, that's a powerful thing. But the truth is, this is not even the best picture of our relationship with God. Because what it sort of portrays is, you know, I'm generally a pretty good person, but I, I have my bad days. And I'm so glad that God's grace is there for me for those days when I really mess up. He says, if you really want to understand the gospel story and God's love for us, this is the marriage that you have to understand. Instead, imagine a couple that's been married for 50 years. And the husband, in his old age, has developed Alzheimer's dementia. And he can no longer take care of himself. And even his most basic needs, like eating and cleaning, have to be met by his wife. In fact, as the Alzheimer's progresses, he no longer even recognizes her because of the dementia. And he is incapable of reciprocating in any meaningful way in this marriage. And in fact, sometimes in that dementia, he's combative and fights with her because he thinks she's a total stranger. But even in that debilitated state, the wife continues to care for the husband and love him. And what Elwell says is, that's the gospel. You brought nothing of value into the relationship that God needed but yourself in your broken state. But in that brokenness, God showed his unlimited grace for you in caring for you and loving you. And I think that's what Paul is trying to say here is when you understand that story of how much God loves you, how could you not love the others in your life? Even the ones who are attacking you and trying to harm you. And rather than judging them or attacking them back, what you realize is this is just one more opportunity to show the love of God to this person. If I could invite you to just apply this message in just the simplest way, it would be to walk in the Spirit this week by the simple expression of a prayerful heart where you just pray to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, help me to understand this gospel love that God has for me. And then the second prayer is like it, where you say, God, Holy Spirit, who are the people around me that could benefit from experiencing my love, which is really ultimately your love? I wonder how many of these needs we're so blind to that are right around us because we're so obsessed with ourselves. And maybe this week by just simply praying that prayer, God is going to lift those scales off of your eyes and realize there are some really hurting people in your place of work, in your family, maybe even in your marriage. And God wants to use you to minister to that person in that love, to show them who Jesus is. Let's pray.